Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There is nothing quite like a puppy, is there? I've got mine right here. Laszlo Donut. Say hi, Laszlo. Nope, he just licked the microphone. Well, in any case, there is more to puppydom than just holding a squirming, furry dumpling in your arms. They are their own beings. And our guest today, Alexandra Horowitz, is the founder of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard. And she has a new book out, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. We're going to talk to her about why puppies are cognitively interesting, as well as being the cutest little fluff balls, and how those two things might be related. That's all coming up next. Nasty dogs. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Take it from me, a new puppy owner, that most puppy books are, as Alexandra Horowitz puts it, instructional. Here's a complicated, furry, adorable piece of machinery you just carried into your home. How do you get it to run? But her new book, The Year of the Puppy, is not that. Instead, she follows her then-puppy quiddity from birth, his mama licking the amniotic sac from his body, to the end of the first year, integrated into his mixed-species family in New York City. Into her mixed-species family. It's a richly reported, deeply considered appreciation of another mind, another way of being, silly, floppy, another set of tools for sensing and understanding the world. We're delighted to have Alexandra Horowitz, founder of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard and best-selling author of multiple books on the dog mind with us this morning. Welcome, Alexandra. (laughs) Thanks, Alexis. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us about a puppy coming home. Like, what are they experiencing as we sort of, wherever we got them from a foundation, like our dog Milo Foundation, shout out to them, and we bring them in to the house, like, what are they seeing? Everything is new for them. We tend to forget because we're familiar with our homes. But if you get a puppy, a young puppy, this puppy probably, hopefully, has met numerous people, but has been in the same place all their life, surrounded by their siblings and their mother. And suddenly, that is all completely gone. 
you're in an entirely different space made up of completely different things with foreign people of a different species, right, <laughs> that you've never met, and maybe some other animals, and also all sorts of expectations uh, from those people about how the world should go. So it's entirely new. They're extremely quick learners, but we forget how the, every, the smells are new, the sights are new, how you're supposed to do things, how things happen, how the day goes. It's all new. So I have to, have to ask you the question that all uh, people ask puppy owners, which is, why did you get a puppy? <laughs> when I thought about researching a book about the first year of a dog's life, it occurred to me, well, you know, this might be a nice time to start to live with a very young puppy because I never had, you know, I'd adopted dogs later in their life, many months or years into their lives. And so I'd never known them since day one. Mm. And I, of course, I, like everyone else who meets a dog later in their life, wondered what happened to them, right? What's their story, their biography? And maybe what are the things that explain some of the personality that I see today? So I thought we will also get a, a pup. We will also get a puppy. In my addition to my writing about um, the first year of the science of a puppy's life, mm. uh, I was advised, of course, that getting a puppy was a terrible idea <laughs> by <laughs> numerous veterinarians. <laughs> However, you know it what it is something um, completely worth experiencing, and I hope this book is some way of getting people prepared for that. Mm. So you you note that historically people would have seen more animal life cycle like we would have seen puppies be born but now you know we've got dog breeding industries we've got um, you know different types of ways of acquiring uh, a companion for your home without necessarily seeing this being be born you were able to see your puppy on day 1 i believe right yeah and I watched a few litters, so I got to see a few births. And I am surprised, in fact, that I had never seen a birth. I studied dogs professionally. I've lived with dogs my whole life. But unless you are in the business of breeding or let your dog have puppies, you probably haven't seen a birth, unlike 200 years ago in America, when people would have just been around their dogs full life cycle. Um, so it's just extraordinary. You feel like... Uh, you're holding your breath the whole time, right? And that's a very long time because it takes many, many hours. Mm. Um, in some cases, you know, as many hours as there are puppies. Uh, and in the case of the litter from which I adopted a, a dog, there were 11 puppies. Mm. You know, in this case, you want us to think about, I think, the the family of the dog before they come into your family, right? That that dog's life didn't start when they came in through your door. That yeah. in fact, the dog's life started as his or her mom licked it into being. Right. What's important about understanding those weeks, those early weeks? You know, some of those early weeks from about three to 12 weeks are considered by researchers the nine most important <laughs> weeks of the, of the dog's life insofar as they are racing into development as as a dog. They start out, you know, completely blind and deaf and unable to basically move themselves. They're dependent on their mothers for everything. And then she really shepherds them quickly into uh, being part of this litter. And then they start learning from their siblings. 
it's a really influential time. A lot happens to them. And what happens really is going to affect who they become later in significant ways that it's not impossible but hard to unpack. I love that you approach this very common thing that we understand that, that we've seen the puppy pile. Mm. Tell us about like how <laughs> when when you're trying to think your way into the puppy mind, where did you get on the meaning of the puppy pile? <laughs> the, so the puppy pile was essentially the posture I always found them in. Of I was visiting um, a woman who was fostering this dog maze and her puppies. Her uh, eleven we, puppies. <laughs> yes, her eleven puppies. She signed up for a lot. Um, bless her and. Every time I arrived, if they weren't excited by my arrival, which didn't happen for a few weeks, uh, as they're not really sort of seeing others, um, they were all piled on top of each other in every manner, you know, uh, some just sleeping and even just sitting there almost nursing on each other. They were always in contact with each other. And never more than seeing that multiple times was I struck by how one of the first things we basically often do when we bring a, a puppy into our homes is sort of isolate them. They're no longer with their uh, siblings, of course. That can't be helped unless you're going to adopt all 11, but <laughs> the, which I don't recommend. But that we put them, often puppies are crate trained f- immediately. And I think a lot of just distress behavior and difficulty in, in kind of getting into the family comes from the fact mm. that they have been touching other warm bodies Uh, the family that they've always known forever. And of course, they can be more and more independent, but that's still a great place of comfort and why it's interesting to me that we we typically deprive them of it almost right away. What are the other sort of most important components of the puppy mind that a new puppy owner might want to understand about how that mind is processing the world? Well, they're very open and susceptible. So they enter this socialization period in um, at about three weeks that I was mentioning, these important weeks, and they still might be in it when they come into a home. And that means that they're, they're kind of cognitively open, very open-minded. They're less likely to respond with fear or anxiety uh, or aggression to something new or unexpected or f- or what might later be frightening, a loud noise, uh, a person approaching suddenly, a new species, a new dog, whatever the thing is, planes overhead, leaf blower outside. The, at this period, they are pretty good at kind of adjusting to that as being just the way the world is if you give them small exposures to all these things. Mm-hmm. So you still have an opportunity to make them accustomed to the world that they're going to be living in with you by, you know, making sure people come by the house who are new people so that they know people other than just you. Um, introducing them to any types of animals you want them to be comfortable around, like exposing them to loud noises if they're going to be in a city or whatever the types of smells and sounds are where you live doing this practice almost like, uh, you know, it could be affected by just going out with them regularly into the world, but they're, they're open, they're susceptible. And that's a great time for new dog people to take advantage of that. Yeah. So I uh, have a really important question for you. Are you ready for it? (laughs) All right. You're sure you're ready for it. Is it about a puppy? It's about a puppy. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Why does my dog get the zoomies? <laughs> uh, I think if dog, you know, just to describe it for non-dog owners, sometimes mm-hmm. you bring your dog outside or something happens, and suddenly the dog is just sprinting around, leaping, in our case, you know, into the tomato plants or like a, any available <laughs> tuft of grass. You just, they do this wild thing, but it only happens like once or twice a day maybe. And what is the, I guess, developmental need that is satisfying? <laughs> well, I mean, one way to answer that, Alexis, would be to say there's some places science hasn't yet gone, and this <laughs> might be that place. But, uh, you know, to me, that really, zoomies are terrific fun to watch, and they don't disappear um, after puppyhood or early puppyhood. They'll, in some dogs, depending on the temperament of the dogs, they'll continue. They're really just an expression of that abundant over-arousal or lots of energy. They don't happen randomly, right? They happen when they get mm-hmm. excited during play or chasing right? Or the running through a puddle. And then it just like, it's an extra like turbo boost. But I don't think there is any uh, developmental <laughs> um, element in it as far as I know. Um, but as I say, it's yet to be studied. Uh, I've asked my dumb question now. So I want to <laughs> open the phone lines for people. What do you want to know about what your dog is thinking or how your dog or dogs in general process the world? We're talking about puppies and dog cognition with Alexandra Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. And you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I was hoping you could maybe tell us what home, just quickly, what the home that your puppy came into was. Like, who were the mm. other animals were there, just as we go forward so people know. Sure. That. Yes. So, the set the scene. I live with uh, my husband and son, uh, who at the time was 10. And we lived with um, two large-ish dogs who we'd been with for a long time. They were both 12, Finnegan and Upton, and a cat, Edsel. And did they all receive the puppy with uh, open arms? They did not. (laughs) (laughs) We will get to more of that when we come back from the break. Again, we are talking about puppies and dog cognition and the interior world of the animals that we live with. We're joined by Alexandra Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, and many other best-selling books. And I can tell from the phone lines lighting up, we'll be joined by lots of you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. Na, 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 I said I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about puppies and dog cognition with Alexander Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Um, Alexander, I think a lot about this uh, famous 1974 paper by Thomas Nagel called What's It Like to Be a Bat? Mm. That's about what it is to be sort of another creature. And, you know, we've had the artist and author James Breidel on. He talked about trying to imagine the umwelt, like the, what it's like to be uh, a tick. Mm-hmm. How do you, as someone who studies dogs and understands their sort of sensorium and minds and cognitive development, how do you imagine yourself into the interior world of a dog? Well, you've hit on what I try to do precisely. Uh, you know, the Umwelt idea is very inspiring of understanding the worldview of a species or an individual and that knowing that everyone's is quite different based on what they can perceive and what they know. And so that's those are the things we can gather, a better understanding of how they literally see the world or smell it or hear it or feel it or detect the electricity in it. Um, and also kind of cognitively what kind of creatures they are, what they, how they solve problems, their flexibilities, their skills. Um, and from kind of gathering the evidence in those fields, then you start, you have to take some kind of imaginative leap basically into what it might be like to be that perceptive cognitive creature. Hmm. Does it all come down in some fundamental way though to imagining how rich and different their sense of smell is from Mm. ours? Well, I do think I've put a lot of my energy into that part because their sense of smell is probably a primary, the primary sensory modality for them. Just, you know, they smell the world as we see it. And the the way we underestimate what that might be like, I think, has led me to spend a lot of time, especially in that domain, because our imaginations aren't terrific. We think of smells as sort of good or bad, unless you're doing smells professionally or you're a super smeller. And there's this rich world of just information that we're missing. And and also history, right? I mean, you've described mm-hmm. walking with a dog down the street and, and them being able to parse through the layers of the people who've passed through. They're almost like being able to see ghosts. It is something like that, right? I think about how we think we're sharing moments with our dogs all the time. And there's our feeling of what's happening at that moment is I'm walking with my dog down the street and we're seeing the same things and basically having that same experience. But it occurs to me, right, that anything the dog is smelling on the ground is basically something that's information about someone who's passed by or something that's already happening. So their sense of that moment that we're sharing, it actually includes more of like the world of someone who's really recently passed by than than we see because the person's around the corner, right? And we no longer see them. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you imagine, this, may, this is kind of a difficult question to phrase, but how do you imagine that's internally represented for a dog? You know, like we have a way of seeing and I don't see smells, right? Like mm-hmm. there's nothing in my, you know, I'm sitting in this studio. There's nothing, I can't see any of the smells. Do you imagine that they have a representation of that 
Mm. In in their minds, that's different from ours. I mean, how could we probe that? I suppose. But. I, I'm so, I'm almost certain that it's different than ours. One, ours is mediated by language, um, and it's like imagining in your mind to to a newborn. You know, there's something there. They're making representations of the world, but like exactly the shape of it is really hard to imagine. I mean, that's a very, very interesting question, and I think that I can't imagine exactly the subjective experience of the dog but if you think about if you close your eyes and think about vision and you think about how the world pops up in your head i think the smell equivalent of that would be something a little bit more like visualizations of airflow right where things are kind of wafting and waning in and out so more of a kind of shimmery present um that that's there that might be an imaginative way of thinking about what they're experiencing. Yeah, someone once told you they thought it would might be like bioluminescence, like in the ocean. <laughs> yes. Would be, yeah. A, yeah, Julia Yubigo, who's a, a trainer in uh, outside of Seattle, absolutely had, she pictures it as this kind of like uh, completely immersive, um, but hard to pin down, right, a visual experience that we have. What a beautiful, really a beautiful thought. Um, we have a lot of callers, so I want to start bringing some of them in, and we'll wrap back around some of these questions. Um, Michelle in Oakland, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. Awesome. Uh, this is a super interesting show, and I just I would love to hear. Um, I myself, the connection to my dog is. Um, I'm not even almost choke up even like. The, the lives that we've lived with them and, and lost. And it's just, it's deeper than, of course, any human connection. And uh, having just tested my DNA, <laughs> 23 and me and my Neanderthal DNA is like 98% more than, than uh, any other person. Um, can you talk a little bit about how long have, have, have our dog friends been with us? And, mm-hmm. I just I feel like it's as long as we've been, and I feel like there are protectors, and I would love to hear, like, from an evolutionary biology, um, like, what research, like, any new research in this yeah. realm. I'd love to hear you talk about it. Um, thank Michelle, you. thank you for, uh, for bringing that up. I mean, I just, uh, I would just say that I, I also find this fascinating that canine intelligence has kind of co-evolved with our own, right? I mean, mm. it's one of their key skills. Yeah, and uh, some people talk, Brian Hare, for instance, talks about um, the our being kind of co-domesticated with dogs. In other words, our evolution kind of wormed into their evolution as, as we domesticated them, um, as we kind of made them into the species that we wanted to live with. So the history of that, as I'm sure uh, you already know a little bit of Michelle, is tens of thousands of years, but this is an evolving field uh, that that is to say, we don't know exactly when um, dogs were first domesticated and stopped being, you know, the proto-wolves, the ancestors of the gray wolves we know today. Um, and there's a lot of exciting research about it. It probably almost certainly wasn't a moment and it might have happened many times around the world at different times and repeatedly with different populations. But almost certainly it involved our noticing dogs as potentially useful, for instance, harbingers or of, of predators or, or as guards. And there, some population of then wolves becoming less fearful of us as predators um, and maybe 
seeing us as possible resources as well. And it probably began something like that as, in a way, an unconscious, potentially cooperative exercise, right, that then just becomes more and more and more deliberate, at least on our part, as we start to selectively breed some dogs for certain functions. Um, but tens of thousands of years that we've been together and you know, as soon as I end the sentence, there'll be new research um, <laughs> on how far back that goes. So I wanted to stay on this evolutionary score for one second here, which is that people have built up an incredible set of like human structures and representations around the idea of sort of pack hierarchy and like the quote unquote like mm -hmm. alpha dog and mm -hmm. these things. What does research say about how much truth there is in those thoughts about pack hierarchy for dogs themselves? Mm -hmm. uh, and how do you feel about the application of those things, both in sort of human life, but also for training dogs? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the idea of a dominance hierarchy, that's a real thing that exists in dis and is a good way to describe some social animal behavior. And there was a wolf researcher um, in, I think, the 70s, Schechter, who studied um, some captive wolves and their behavior and thought that the dominance hierarchy, whether alpha and betas who are sort of trying to take over power from the alpha, et cetera, matched well the behavior of these wolves. And that idea was sort of sticky because people then thought, aha, so dogs are from wolves and therefore they are also in this dominance relationship um, with each other and with us. But as it turns out, then wolf researchers who actually study wolves in the wild um, say, well, you know, there might be a pair that has a dominance relationship with each other, but basically packs are family units, right? They're, they're parents and their descendants and so forth. And they don't have anything like a dominance hierarchy the way that it was in, applied. And the reason that Schechter thought that they did because his captive wolves that he studied were all adolescent males mm. in a small enclosure. And... Yeah, you might get some kind of Lord of the Flies kind of scenario in any population of adolescent males um, if you put them in a small space. So that actually was incorrect understanding of wolves. And it's so it's even more incorrect to assume that it's going to be the case with dogs. It's a it's not just outdated way of thinking. It's just a, um, a incorrect way of thinking about the dog's relationship with us or with each other. Mm. We, this question may be somewhat related to uh, Ren's query in San Francisco. Welcome, Ren. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, so right now there's a movement to ban shot collars in San Francisco, and there's been a ton of pushback from trainers who use electronic collars. So, um, and Alexandra, I'm a big fan, read all your books. Mm, what are your you. thoughts on a shot collar or an electronic collar to train a puppy? Yeah, I would always advise against uh, a shock collar, an electronic collar, uh, even the ones where they say, well, it's just a very small shock. Uh, that is training through punishment, what's called positive punishment, do a behavior you don't like, you know, apply up, uh, even though it says positive, what it means is like, apply something that's an, a punishment. And we know the science shows us that what dogs learn from positive punishment is it can be to avoid the action, but it basically is a generalized fear of the things that might have caused that action, including any people who are nearby. If that might happen to be, you know, an owner, for instance, mm. that could be really dangerous. 
And it's not as effective a mode of learning as reinforcement, positive reinforcement, which is just when they do an action, you reward it in some way uh, to make it more likely they'll do it again. Um, and so I am all for getting rid of these devices that some people say, well, I needed it. You know, the, the, this was an emergency situation. I do not think that there is an emergency situation other than a dog being in the middle of an emergency situation, you know, attacking someone or being attacked, that you would need to apply a punishment. It's not a good form of learning. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Alexandra. I um, stepping back one uh, one bit. You know, one of our uh, listeners writes in to say, and, and you've, you've addressed this, but I want you to address it in a different way. Could your guest address the issue of pack status? Why is one dog the alpha? How is status demonstrated? Eating first, leading on walks, etc. How is status established and maintained? What are the relative merits and obligations of pack status? Is it true that the owner must be the alpha, or can there be a human alpha and a canine alpha in a pack? And uh, I want to just <laughs> use this comment to think about what an elaborate kind of imaginative structure people have built around this idea of there being like an alpha dog and for if yeah. you think, based on your previous answers, that people need to sort of unlearn this way of thinking, what do they replace it with? Mm. Uh, well, in one way to think about how the alpha dog idea makes no sense is that the way it's wielded is that humans, as alluded to with the question, should be the alpha. Otherwise, the dog will take control. All right. Have you ever seen a dog take control of the household? Right now, they're the ones running the household, saying who's going to eat when, who's when you're going to take them outside. No, the, you know, that never happens. It's a kind of ridiculous notion if you think about it that way. Instead, you should think about the dog in your family as a family member, as that's how they think of you, right? That's how they thought of their natal family. Um, that's how wolves think of other wolves um, in their pack. And you can use the word pack if you want, right? But I think of like it's, uh, I think of us more as like a, a gang, basically, right? <laughs> I mean, we're a family unit and they see us as, I don't know if they see us as other dogs, but as, as one of them and, and, yeah. and I see them as one of us. Yeah. We're talking about puppies and dog cognition with Alexandra Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She's also the founder of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard, one of the world's experts in why dogs are cognitively interesting or how. What do you want to know about what your dog is thinking or how dogs process the world? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Or if you can't get through there, you can try Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email, of course, is forum at kqed.org. Um, so I have a nine-year-old who mm. I asked uh, if they have any interesting uh, questions and they came back with a bunch, uh, a hilarious one. Can dogs use swear words? <laughs> uh, but the one that I wanted to, to ask you was, can they feel all this is this is what my nine year old said. Can they feel all the feelings that humans can feel? Mm -hmm. Do they feel the ones that they do feel the same, deeper or shallower? Nine-year-olds are the best because right. I, you know, what we forget is that we had this curiosity uh, when we're younger. And then what happens somehow is we start to make um, assumptions about what, for instance, the dog in front of us knows or understands or wants or feels or, or needs or the grudge they're holding. And it's still like a question. We're still finding it out when we're younger. And so I love that question. And it's still something scientists are researching. Do they feel everything that we feel? It's certain that they feel emotions. 
Um, and you can see in their behavior uh, happiness and disgust and anger and fear, for instance. Then some of the other types of feelings that we have about um, ourselves or others or uh, a situation we've gotten ourselves in, it's less obvious that dogs have those same feelings, partly because so many of those feelings we have are about our culture, mm. right? How we think about other people, for instance, and how we think about ourselves. Um, but it's not obvious that they don't have yeah. feelings that are that are analogous to that. It's still a question that researchers are asking. I guess here's my follow-up on my nine-year-old's question. You know, we do we share a language of emotion with dogs in the sense, can we understand when we see a dog doing something that we read as a particular emotion? When can we trust that read of their emotional state? You know, as a scientist, I'm always skeptical of my instant read, right? I don't see why I should say I understand what your emotional experience is like, like let alone, and you at least were the same species, let alone a completely other species. So I'm always, I try to stay agnostic, even as I think, oh, he's holding up that stick, he's holding his head up so high, so proud. I'm identifying a behavior that could be correlated with his experience. And it's not wrong to say, to say, but it's not necessarily right. Um, and I did a study on one of these emotional experiences, which showed that sometimes we're, we're wrong about what the behavior means. And that was the guilty look that maybe, <laughs> maybe you're Guilt familiar face. with already. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like the uh, it's very adorable face with the ears back and the head down and looking away and the tail between the legs and so forth, wagging mad madly. And people are like, oh, he knows he's guilty because he put on that look, right? We look at a behavior and we say, I know what's in what their experience is because it might be like that in the human. Um, and we did a little study which showed that actually that look comes up not more often when they've done something they should feel guilty about, which in this case was eating a treat that they were told not to eat. Um, but instead, when the person thinks that they have eaten the treat and, and like comes in and even before they start saying, you know, what did you do? Uh, our behavior gives the lie to our feeling mm. about it. And they re this the guilty look is a reaction to that. It's uh, a submissive kind of behavior saying, you know, please don't be angry at me for whatever you're about to be angry at me about. And so it's not obvious that they understood that they feel guilt. I can't say they don't, but it's not obvious from their behavior. So it's it's tricky. And I encourage people to like just, you know, be interested in whether our assumptions are right or wrong. Yeah. We are talking about puppies and dog cognition with one of the world's foremost experts, Alexandra Horowitz. She is the author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, and a variety of other uh, best-selling books. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. 35 bucks. I'm going to buy me a dog. 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 Yeah. Eyes, I need a friend now. Yeah, yeah. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Talking about puppies and dog cognition with Alexandra Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, and founder of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard. Uh, Kelly writes in to say, I heard the guests say positive reinforcement is the best behavior training, but our older dog has started peeing in a room in the house that we don't use much, and we can't get her to stop. When we catch her in the act of doing something bad like this, what can we do? You can... You can't punish her, right? Yeah, if she's peeing in a room like that, it's probably because she can't help uh, but pee, right? She needs, maybe there's a medical intervention that I would recommend looking at. That's, you're saying that she's an older dog is a is a real tell there. So I would look, I would talk to your vet first. It might be that she just can't control her bladder and needs to be going out more often, right? So it's not about training her always. Sometimes it's just about seeing what she's saying with her behavior and trying to make the environment work for it better. Yeah. Let's um, let's go to some uh, phone calls here. Uh, Miriam in Sunnyvale. Hey, Miriam, can you hear us? Hi, yes, I can. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, what's your question? Hi, I have um, a 13-year-old dog, and we had a 16-year-old dog before that who passed recently, and we always used to leave them home alone. We went out together, and now I feel extremely guilty leaving him home alone and worried that he gets lonely, similar to your 9-year-old. I worry about how he feels, (laughs) and I was wondering if there has been any research on if that affects the dog being left at home alone for several several hours or if it's all in my head as a human. Mm. Well... I, I think they can deal with uh, being by themselves in many cases, right? But um, I think that the more that you can give them to do, the more stimulation opportunities, I think the better you can feel about leaving them by themselves. Um, because essentially, we control so much of their life. It's got to be hard to be left without a social other to interact with, with very little to do, sort of very little stimulation. So I think you can provide her him with more stimulation and and if you can get somebody in there to walk the dog if you uh or just hang out with them or roll a ball if if you do have to leave them for a long time yeah uh let's go to nina in san jose welcome nina hi um i have a 10 month old english springer spaniel she's half field line half show line so half of oh that's her right now uh <laughs> So half of her is very, like, prey-driven, hunting-driven, and we socialized her during the pandemic, but it's challenging because, you know, when they aren't vaccinated, you're supposed to keep them away from other dogs. She's a female dog, so we had her spayed, and she had to kind of stay away from other dogs then. Um, Because she's a hunter, really, in her soul, she goes after every squirrel, every bird, so taking her for a walk can be a real challenge. We've taken her to puppy school. We spend a lot of time with her at home, but... 
I, I'm wondering, is 10 months too late? Was all that isolation mm-hmm. um, during all those different periods detrimental to, to her development? Um, and can we make up some of that now at this stage? Well, what you have is a teenager. So what we know about teenagers is they can be in a rough spell <laughs> kind of phase, basically, that they're going through. And dogs are teenage from, you know, the time that would have been the first heat. Uh, in, in your case, I don't know when that was, but about six months it would have been maybe, and up to about two years. So even the things like the cooperative way she might have learned about dealing with the world um, before that time, you know, when they're teenagers, they're going, they're still... Their mind is catching up with their body, and so uh, they're still evolving. In terms of having missed uh, important socialization times, hopefully she got really well socialized um, wherever you got her. And so that is in there somewhere. Um, And it's not too late. It just becomes more difficult. You have to do a little more explicitly the older the dog is when they're sort of getting to be in social groups for the first time. Um, But in terms of all that like breed specific behavior, you're seeing like the, and they really aren't necessarily maybe the same type of social dog that you'd have if you had a other breed. You know, that is very, I think seeing it as very breed specific and coming to terms with that and figuring out outlets for their energy is gonna be an important part of like getting through Mm. teenagerness um, happily. Um, we have a uh, a dog on the line, apparently, Rocco in <laughs> Sacramento. <laughs> yes, Rocco, are you a good boy? Um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Alexis. Um, very important topic. I'm a, a 11-year-old Pomeranian. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my mom started uh, working from home, which is great, and I love to sleep at her feet. And uh, But, you know, the thing is, I'm around her all the time, which I absolutely adore, but sometimes she does leave the house, and uh, I really hate that. I uh, yeah. start barking and getting up on the couch and running around, and I just hate it when she leaves. Is there anything that my mom can do or, or something that I can do to, to ease that anxiety? Thank you so much, Rocco the dog. Uh, As this is the first question I've gotten directly from the dog, because usually I'm asking them the questions. Um, <laughs> the I... You know, I think that that type of um, anxiety at separation is extremely normal. So first thing to see is like it's it's not easy for a dog to be left alone when they're bonded with a person or a family. Um, and in fact, you know, if they bark and bark and bark and eventually the person comes back, they sort of learn that, that maybe that's what I need to do to get them to come back, right? So that we could be inadvertently kind of supporting their uh, anxiety during that time. But I think you have to take it seriously um, and see that it is, you know, when we feel anxious, it's a horrible feeling and they're feeling that for all that time and they need some outlet for that. It could be starting again, trying to do very brief separations, like start sort of recondition her to seeing that it's okay, that she's gonna come back. She's gonna come back after two minutes and then five minutes and then seven minutes. And so that she learns gradually longer times are are okay. And then really giving her something to do, her very favorite Kong filled with peanut butter or whatever it is comes out right when she leaves, right? Like she's not sneaking away, but like these two things are associated now. Like you leave and I get my very favorite treat. Hopefully something that's gonna take me like a half hour to work through. If you tried giving them that and at the same time 
have a separation and a return, you might start seeing a little bit of improvement. But it's it's going to take a little while, and I, it's because the anxiety is real. You know, uh, Irene asks, my almost five-year-old border healer mix was absolutely terrified of two chocolate labs in our neighborhood with whom he had literally never interacted. They were incredibly chill, well-disciplined dogs, which would just walk on by without even glancing at him as he lost his mind. He'd start hysterically alarm barking from inside the house long before I could see or hear them coming. Could they have had something going on that triggered him? And I just want to abstract this question a tiny bit, which is, what do we know about how dog memory works, right? That we, right. we imagine perhaps that their memories work like our memories, but what do we know about that on a research level? Right. We don't know a lot. There's just a little research about episodic-like memories, in other words, like specific kind of conscious recall in a way of something that happened before. Certainly, they have good memories. They can remember things, people, places, other dogs, encounters. They'll Once you go to the dog park one way, they'll remember that way, right? They're... they're they have very strong memories, and the question is sort of like, what is? Can they like rehearse those? May think about oh those, those labs. I I remember what they did to me, and now I'm wondering when they're going to come by again. I don't know if they're th- ruminating and thinking about memories that way. In this case, it sounds like there was no encounter, previous encounter with these dogs, and I I it's hard to explain without it's hard to understand exactly what's happening without knowing the full context does the dog bark at other dogs right is there do they um is there a time of day when these dogs come by that might also be a time when they're really excited and looking out the window and you know I can't tell what other things might be correlated with it um mm-hmm. and sometimes there is no I mean I think we 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 kind of dis we dis uh we don't give enough credit to like just weird quirks of behavior, <laughs> personality, basically, mm-hmm. that that actually might account for some of the things that we see. And so, you know, some dogs just don't like other dogs, and we can't really tell why. It's not, it's not something they did to them. It might not be their smell. It might not be the, how they look. It's just they get a feeling. And science is definitely not able to answer why that might be. Yeah. Let's uh, go to Suzanne in Berkeley. Hi, Suzanne. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, I was so happy that you asked a question about the Zoomies early <laughs> on, and I kind of wanted to revisit the Zoomie issue just a bit. Um, I have had dogs that have never had the Zoomies, and then I had a friend who had a dog whose Zoomie episodes were, like, intense and could mm-hmm. go on for 20 minutes to half an hour, and it became kind of unsafe. And I'm just wondering, um, is there a, a good way to redirect the zoomies? I mean, you can create an environment that works, right, and make it so it's as safe as possible. But at a certain point, you know, um, it kind of needs to stop. And I'm just wondering what your ideas are or thoughts about how to mitigate that if it's something that's, you know, just too intense or too extensive. Mm-hmm. I have never heard of zoomies that reached kind of like a point of danger if it were in a, a unsafe environment that seems potentially possible mm-hmm. right if you have a very small area where you can be off leash and then the zoomies just takes them beyond that area um i would i would just go with environmental protections first in other words just go to only places where it's okay for them to do this behavior it could be that i mean lots of dogs have compulsive behaviors like 
tail chasing. It's very common in certain breeds, actually. It seems to be genetically modulated, mediated, that uh, that maybe are, you know, cross a threshold in some dogs to being compulsive. And maybe that's what's happening in um, the case with your friend's Zoomy dog. But I would think that's pretty rare. More often, you just have to control the environment. And then if it, if it, it turns out to this dog's detriment, right, they're yeah. running until they exhaust themselves. That's when a veterinarian has to come in and say, like, can, is there something that we can add to their yeah. life that will help them? I have to ask one more question for my nine-year-old because I'm also so curious about it, <laughs> which is what do dog barks sound like to other dogs? Mm. Well, they are certainly informative to other dogs. Are they? Uh, They're like, yeah. they are. Yeah. There are there are play barks um, th- for sure. There are just excitement barks. I, you know, what's interesting to me is it's not obvious that dogs do any more interpreting of the meaning, though, of these barks, not a lot more than we do. And barks probably evolved to communicate with us. And we seem generally pretty bad at distinguishing between barks and mostly just think of them as noisy, that we want uh, them to stop. But they... But it's they don't use them to explicitly communicate most of the time. It's just in the case of play, for instance, or excitement, that they'll use that kind of bark. The other ones are sort of for us. So uh, this book is called The Year of the Puppy, and I'd love you to read this passage that's about the end of that year. After all the travails and the sleepless nights and all the things, as this dog becomes a part of your family. I'd be happy to. Uh, and this passage mentions uh, my dogs, Finnegan and Upton, and also May's, uh, her mom, the puppy's mom. On the morning of her birthday, Quid arrives on the bed as if cannon shot and beelines for my face to lick my mouth. Then she circles around and delivers mouth licks to Finnegan, to Upton, to my husband, and to Etzel, the cat who has been unwise enough to follow Quid upstairs. Then she races downstairs and mouth licks our son. I know intellectually what she is doing. She is greeting us. She is showing her affection for us. She is trying to get our attention, all of those things at once. Her manner is so professional though, so completely efficient and thorough, that as I lie there hiding my face under the sheet and against the second round, I get another idea of what she is doing. Each morning, Quid faces what to her are a series of unresponsive still bodies. Perhaps she believes she is giving us life with her licks. With each life-giving lick, we slowly stir from our comas and rejoin the living. Indeed, an exceptionally good lick brings a whole lot of life all of a sudden. We may rise straight out of bed, uttering a great sound. She knows best to back away then, to stand vigilant over this new life she has created, and definitely not to lick again, for fear of its potency exceeding that of all known life forms. This is like nothing more than what Mays did a year ago today as she licked her puppies into life. On a walk with my family, as Quid checks in on everyone, nosing each of us in turn, I see her mother again, poking her nose into the pen, holding 11 mewling eggplant-shaped pups to count that everyone is there. And hasn't she given us life? Our family's story of the pandemic, like those of innumerable other families, includes sickness and loss, and fear. But the story is also entangled with the chaos and joy brought by this complex furry character whom we have come to know. When the world kept its distance, she walked right up to the world and licked it in its face. 
My alarm about the future was regularly displaced by the simple need to help this puppy survive into her future. Days took form by her passage through them, saving us from weeks of undifferentiated hours. She reminded us of, she embodied, the pleasure of life. That's Alexandra Horowitz reading from her book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. Now, I know that you had these other dogs, and they passed in between the time when you wrote that passage and, and today. And, and several of our listeners, you know, Audra in Berkeley and, mm. um, and also Agnes posting on Mastodon, wanted to know, you know, if dogs grieve their pack mates. Like, did Quid grieve or help you grieve? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad you brought up the loss of those dogs because, you know, every one of these new introductions, um, we know eventually we're going to face this horrible ending and, and the grief is real. For Quid, who lost Finnegan and then Upton within a month of each other um, when she was two, um, she, I feel like she felt the loss of them both together. Um, maybe after Finnegan died, Upton was still with us. She, I didn't see anything which looked like grief, but certainly many people do see very specific signs of withdrawal and grief on loss of their companion. But after they were both gone, she, um, yeah, was looking for them, I would mm -hmm. say, uh, literally looking for them. And, her, you know, she clung closer to us. And we kind of felt exactly the same way. Hmm. WB writes in to say, this all reminds me of the old Irish legend of a woman who is turned into a dog by an evil goddess and is then given to an unwitting man for many years. The man who became her owner would note her sharp moments of humanity as they sat by the fire, the look of understanding in her eyes, and how she understood his most quiet feelings. Uh, <laughs> um, we have been talking about puppies and dog cognition with Alexandra Horowitz, author of The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, and the founder of the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexander. We knew this was going to be a really fun show, and you delivered. Thank you. Thanks, Alexis. I loved it. Callers, uh, thank you for calling in. Commenters, we obviously couldn't get to all of them. Very busy hour. Uh, this hour of Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Jennifer Ng. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Our engineers this week are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Paul C., Kelly Campos, and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis is senior producer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Up Ahead with guest host Ariana Prail. If I die before I wake, VJ. If I die before I wake, VJ. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera, 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.